Welcome to New Hope Church's teaching series podcast. We're in the second week of our new series, Luke's Gospel, The Great Reversal. We will journey to Easter by exploring Jesus through the eyes of Luke. Luke presents Jesus as someone who turns everything and everyone upside down and inside out. We cannot encounter Jesus and stay the same. Pastor John Rosensteel will lead this morning's teaching and our scripture reading is Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. I'd like to take a moment to share a quick note about our annual Advent offering that you, New Hope's congregation, contributed to in December 2021. Our goal was to raise $24,000 to be used to support the caregivers in our local community. Unsurprisingly, you all stepped up to the challenge, but you took it even further. You generously gave $32,000 to New Hope's initiative. That's $8,000 more than we could have dreamed of sharing. We, the staff, are honored by the generosity that you continue to show, and that goes beyond just financial generosity. From all of us and from the recipients of your donations, thank you. You made a difference in the lives of many. With that being said, let's get to this week's teaching. The following message was recorded at our in-person services on Sunday, January 9th, 2022. Amen. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Good to see everybody. Uh, hello to everyone joining us online. Thanks for, thanks for being out there and participating with us uh, online. Have you ever been chosen for something special? I went to uh, a big circus, Ringling Brothers, I think it was when I was five, one of these Coliseum things. I don't really think they do that anymore, but maybe you had an opportunity to do something like that when you're growing up. And as a five-year-old, you're just like overwhelmed by all the sights and the sounds and the animals and the attractions. And this is a long time ago, so I don't remember all of it, but I remember they came to this pivotal moment, I think they did this regularly, where they would choose like five kids from the entire crowd to ride on the elephant. And guess who they chose? This guy. It's one of those childhood memories you never forget. I think my parents were freaked out. The little boy is like, I'm on the top of the elephant, you know, and they gave me a hat, I remember, and I just thought I was king of the world. Flash forward 12, uh, I was 12 years old, and um, believe it or not, uh, when I, before my voice changed, I had a really good voice. You don't wanna hear me sing now, trust me. But I had a good, I was one of those like, like uh, boy voices, high pitched, kinda like that kind of deal. And so our church had a tryout. We did, we did this uh, drama, kind of musical, bullfrogs and butterflies. I don't know if any of you ever remember that. So I just tried out, I never really sang a lot of my, guess who got the lead role? This guy. So I was like freaked out. I thought I was gonna puke the first time I went out there because I was standing in front of a crowd and singing. I've kind of gotten over the crowd thing over time. Uh, but I just remember that as a pivotal moment. Have you ever been chosen for something special? Think about it in your own journey. I remember all through the years of playground, neighborhood sports, I love sports, that deal where you're playing kickball or baseball or football or basketball and you gotta choose teams. Do you know this? Have you been in this scenario before? And there's two captains, and then everybody chooses. Well, I'm, I was a pretty good athlete, and, but I was a really scrawny kid, really like underdeveloped and small kid. So like, I still feel it in my bones and I'm talking about it. Like there's that time you just don't wanna be the last kid chosen, right? That's it. You could be second to last and that's cool. But because I was scrawny, people sized me up and like, I don't know, I'll take this kid, you know, that kind of deal. They were always pleased when they chose me, but do you remember that? Can you feel it? And this is the way the world works. When the world chooses something, it's based on merit. It's based on somebody looks good or is athletic or has connections or power or privilege. This is just how it is. We know this. 
This is, the, this is the water we swim in as humans. But the kingdom of God is different. When God chooses, God doesn't choose based on those things. Thank goodness, amen? Interestingly enough, when we see God choosing people in scripture, and I think we see this in our lives now as the church, we see God often choosing the most unexpected people for the most important things. And I don't know if there's a better story to illustrate that than the story we're gonna look at today. We're in the second week of a series we're calling The Great Reversal, it's Luke's Gospel. And so we're gonna journey from now all the way through Eastern Luke's Gospel. So just kind of get hunkered down in it. If you are looking for something to do for your devotional life and reading scripture, just join us in Luke. You can follow right along with us. We just wanna totally immerse ourselves in Luke's Gospel. There's four Gospels, four eyewitness accounts. And so we're journeying all the way to Easter, looking at the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus through the eyes of Luke. Luke wrote more of the New Testament than any other author. He got Paul by just a couple pages. And he has these unique stories, the Good Samaritan, uh, the lost son that wouldn't be in the Bibles except for Luke. Luke's got this interesting perspective. And he's writing Luke and Acts to this friend, Theophilus, to compel him to follow Jesus more robustly. So it's really a discipleship manual. So one of the key tenets we're gonna follow all through, it's a thread that carries all throughout Luke's gospel, is that Luke is arguing that Jesus is the, the Jesus of the great reversal. That Jesus, every, everything and everyone is turned upside down and inside out. I would put it this way. I don't think it's possible to really authentically encounter Jesus and not be changed. I think that's the argument that Luke is making. If we wanna really enter into discipleship, because this is a discipleship manual, and we encounter Jesus in the pages of Luke and we allow ourselves to be swept up in it and to begin to embody it, we will be different people. And that's my hope for myself in this study and it's my hope for our church as well. So in chapter one, like if you have your Bibles, it's cool to bring your Bibles to church, just FYI, you could do that. I know we have the scriptures on the screen oftentimes, but if you have it on your phone, I think it's really good as disciples because this is just a catalytic event on Sundays. You do your life with Jesus outside the walls of this church. So to be able to get the scriptures out and be able to work your way through and you can't you can, uh, give a proper example of everything on the screens. So in Luke 1, if you have it, pull it up and look at it. And Luke has two primary characters in Luke 1. We looked at Zechariah last week. And he goes back and forth in telling their stories. And we'll kind of pull them apart and put them back together a little bit this week. Zechariah, we spent last week on Zechariah. So Zechariah is a priest. Zechariah gets this once-in-a-lifetime literal lottery system thing where he's chosen to go in the holy place. If you are here last week, you can find that message online if you missed it. He goes in, and Zachariah and his wife are, are, are elderly, and they're barren. So they've been praying for a son, because he's a priest. So it's a lineage of, of male priesthood. And so there's Gabriel. And Gabriel says, it's, it's, it's an incredible day. I got good news for you. Not only is your wife going to have a boy, but the boy will, will run ahead of the Messiah, the one you've been waiting literally for you know, 800 years. And there's been this 400 years of silence. So that's incredibly good news. And Zechariah, the priest, should say, yes. And he's like, I don't know. I don't know that that's true. And you're shocked as a reader. You're like, whoa, that's not how he's supposed to react. So I argued last week, it's because he lives such a noisy life. A priest in that time were lawyers, pastors, and mayors of their town. Super busy, super noisy. He had lost the ability to hear God so much so when God literally showed up and said this good news, he didn't have ears to hear. And that's so important as followers. So Gabriel puts him on the bench 
for nine months and says, you're not going to be able to speak or hear. I'm going to put you in quiet stillness. And in quiet stillness, we discovered that Zachariah, when he emerged from that, was able to hear God again. So I argued last week, and I still do, that as followers of Jesus, we live in a really, really noisy world. It's never been noisier. Think about your life. And I challenged you towards quiet stillness. I introduced this idea of centering prayer. If you got our email this week, it laid that out. That might freak out some of you. It shouldn't. It's, it's been practiced for like 1,200 years by followers of Jesus. So I hope you tried that this week. I talked to some of you and you said it was a struggle fest and that's okay. It is. It's hard to be quiet. It's hard not to just talk to God and tell God what we want or confess our sins. I have plenty of those. But just to sit and listen. But I'm going to keep challenging you because we see the difference it made in Zachariah's life. So we bring in the other character now in chapter one, a more well-known character, Mary. And we're going to see how Luke puts them side by side, comparing and contrasting. And we're going to learn a ton from Mary today. Uh, so my friend Lizzie is going to come in just a second to read uh, the scripture. And uh, as we practiced last week, this is a new year's resolution for our church. This is what we're going to do. And we're joining churches all over the world that do this all throughout history. When we hear God's word, it's not like you're hearing me run my mouth right now telling stories. You're hearing God's word. And when you hear God's word publicly read, typically the reader ends and says, this is the word of the Lord. And then you respond Whoa, you guys are mumbling, just blah, 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 blah. Thanks be to God. So I want to I wanna set Lizzie up for success because she might walk away really hurt. Her feelings may be hurt if you like mumble like that. This is the word of the Lord. Great. You can even do better. I mean, first service, I mean, there weren't as many people there, and they dominated you guys so far. I'm just, I'm just, just a little tip. So uh, let me pray for us, and then Lizzie's going to come up and, and read God's Word. Uh, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, thank you for being in our midst this morning, the folks joining us online, that they're with us in spirit. Uh, we just, we give ourselves to you. Uh, we hopefully would do all the time, but we gather as your people. I pray uh, for uh, the ability to be present. Help us to leave behind uh, the things we brought into this room today that weigh on our hearts, the things that are coming this week that may be weighing on our hearts. Help us just to be fully present with one another and with you. Have your way with us. Mold us and shape us into the image of your son, Jesus, and help us to listen to the story today and watch young Mary and how she inhabits what it looks like to be a follower of you. And uh, may we live more like her, God. So, yeah, thank you for your word. Thank you that we just get to sit and listen and be formed by it. Uh, we love you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said. Luke 1, 26 through 38. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at the, his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him a throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. 
How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. Let your word be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. This is the word of the Lord. So if you're following along Luke 1, so we get we did the Zechariah piece, Luke opens with that, and then Zechariah gets set on the bench in silence, and we're told he goes back to his home, which is probably like five miles outside of Jerusalem. He find, his wife indeed becomes pregnant, and then they disappear into their home for like five months. So that's where Luke leaves that, and then here we go again. Gabriel reemerges. Gabriel now appears to a new person, Mary. This is a busy angel. Full schedule. Appears to Mary, and then Luke sets the context for us. He tells us that Mary is from Nazareth. That doesn't mean anything to us, but it would have to the original readers. Nazareth, if you think of where you grew up, maybe it's around here, maybe it's somewhere else, what's the town of you, you made fun of? Maybe you're, you're from it, but I don't know. You know. What's that town that like nothing good comes from that town? You, do, you make fun of the people from that town. That's what Nazareth was like. Nothing good, another gospel writer says that, nothing good comes from Nazareth. It was agrarian, blue collar, kind of despised. Anybody that came from there like, eh, I don't know. Mary was a nobody from nowhere. So that's quickly established and we're told that she's from Nazareth. And then we're also told that she was betrothed to a man named Joseph. That doesn't mean much to us. It would have to the original audience. In that first century Jewish culture, families arranged marriage. It's still how it is in a lot of the world. And they entered into a contract and then once the contract was established, they entered a year of betrothal. So that was a year that they're not together yet, but they know they will be. So they're kind of a preparatory phase. So they entered into that year. And so Luke tells us during that year, that would have meant everything to the original audience. And Luke goes out of his way, like, I don't want to make everybody uncomfortable with talking about sex in church, but Luke makes crystal clear that Mary's pure. She's never had sex. She's, she's a virgin. That's obviously important to the story. So Gabriel shows up. So now that we have that context, shows up and uh, he says, Mary, greetings, uh, you're highly favored. That's what he says. I, you know, it's, the Bible's written in Greek. We have different translations. We all have preferences, this and that. I don't like how the NIV translates this, greetings, you're highly favored. For this reason, how we interpret favor, we think that that means God plays favorites. God does not play favorites. We're also missing an alliteration in the Greek. It'll come up on the screen. You can see, even if you don't need Greek, how those two Greek words are an alliteration. Alliteration is like Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers, right? That's an alliteration. It looks the same, sounds the same. You use that as a literary device. So Luke is using it as a literary device. I like to translate it as like, be glad you are graced. This does not have anything to do with favoritism. Mary's a nobody from nowhere. It's grace showing up on the scene. So we're told that, that Mary's response, a little bit different than Zechariah, is that she's greatly troubled or perplexed. And I think the reason is she's kind of like, who, me? Like, what? why are you here in Nazareth? Like, there's a lot more important people. Like, why in the world would you ever, angel of the Lord, be appearing to me? I think she was less stunned that there was an angel in front of her than Zechariah and more stunned that an angel would be appearing to her. And then Gabriel drops the bomb. He says, Mary, you're going you're gonna to have a boy. 
And his boy, the boy's name will be Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. And then he tells us, he tells us all kind of things about Jesus in the text, which, which Mary, and this is an important point to understanding all this, Mary was steeped, steeped in the Hebrew scriptures. She, she knew the, the, the Bible like it was the back of her hand. And so, so he tells us a couple of things about Jesus, that Jesus will be called, will be great, will be called the son of the most high, will sit on the throne of his father, David, and his reign will never end. Any first century Jewish person would have been like, boom, 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 boom. Uh, my friend Tim Mackey calls these hyperlinks. When you see a word, you click on it, and it takes you back to the Hebrew scriptures. F packed with hyperlinks, Gabriel's message. Full of messianic language. This Messiah, this Savior, they're waiting all these years to come. And they've been waiting faithfully. And they've had 400 years of silence from the last prophet speaking. He's saying, it's here. It's coming. It's, it's going to be in your belly. Most principal, if you want to look later, at 2 Samuel 7. Nathan's prophecy is just heavily interwoven. And Mary, like any faithful dude, was waiting. She knew exactly, I'm confident, she knew exactly what Gabriel was telling her. That the one you have waited for to literally bring salvation to God's people and make everything that's ever been wrong right again is gonna be in your womb. So then Mary asked the question that anyone in here who's had the birds and the bees talk, and if you haven't, see me later. I'm willing as your pastor. Sometimes you gotta do what you gotta do. Awkward laughter at sex jokes in church. Just never, never works. If you, anyone who ever understands that would ask this question. And she's like, okay, I'm, okay. I'm getting what you're saying. How's that gonna work? How does, how does that work? Great question. And then Gabriel says, basically, we're not going to get into the theology of it today. It's a Holy Spirit thing. And uses this term that the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. Another hyperlink back to Genesis 1. Or we're told that, that God, Father, Son, Spirit are hovering over the waters. So there's this uncreated chaos in Genesis that the author is painting. And out of that chaos, God is overshadowing it and brings forth life. That's the picture we get. In the same way that God the Spirit overshadowed the waters in Genesis 1-2, God now overshadows the womb of this young woman and will bring life. So Gabriel reminds her, Mary, God's word never fails. And this is a key component. I know you've been waiting. I know the people have been waiting for a long time. God's word never fails. And then Mary kind of gulps and says, may your word be fulfilled in me. I don't know if the painting came up. We have a painting, a famous painting of the scene uh, back in the day. And then also there is a picture of the Basilica of the Annunciation. I'm supposed to go to Israel in March, so pray with me. I'm, I'm hoping I can get there. Yes, please, Lord. And uh, I'm hoping to go to this place. It's a, it's a church they built on the traditional site of where Gabriel appeared to Mary. All right, let's pick back up the story. If you're reading along and got your, your Bible in front of you, we're picking up in verse 39. Mary hits the road. At the time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea where she entered Zachariah's home and greeted Mary. So we're bringing the stories together. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, blessed are you among women and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And as soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed 
that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. So Mary goes on a road trip. And this is an important piece. Like it's one thing to have Gabriel come and give this astounding piece of news. And for Mary with her lips to say, okay, I agree to it. Now she's saying with her body. And faith involves both. So Mary takes off on a road trip because she's gotten this piece of information that Elizabeth has miraculously gotten pregnant. I think she takes off for two reasons. Well, three. One, she believes Gabriel. But the other two is that she knows there's no person on planet Earth that's going to believe her story except Elizabeth and Zachariah. So she's trying to find common ground. I think she's also trying to get out of small town. Baby bump starts to come. People start to talk. She's just getting out of town. And this is no small feat. A map will come up showing you the journey. It's similar to the journey that she'll take nine months um, from that point in the story where she goes to Bethlehem. But where Zechariah and Elizabeth live was, was about five miles traditionally outside the city of Jerusalem. 70 to 80 miles for a poor young woman in the school. She probably had to walk most of it. So three, four days, she's taking this seriously. So she enters in, and, and Zachariah, we, we have a, a picture coming up of the church of the St. John the Baptist. This is a, a picture in the town. Even today, I think it kind of looks similar. I hope to see this as well. But kind of walking into this town, and they've got a church where they think that they, they, they live traditionally. So she's walking in this town, and Elizabeth freaks out. And not only does Elizabeth freak out, but John, the preborn baby, the, pre, the one who goes ahead of the Messiah, meets the Messiah for the first time in utero. They're like communicating, and he's just like, woo, in the womb. He's excited, the baby's leaping. And Elizabeth senses that. And then Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, uh, prophesies, blessed among women uh, are you, and the baby you're carrying is blessed as well. And then she gives this great line. She recognizes this mature woman that just waited faithfully. Remember how she responded last week? Different than her husband. She's like, yes, you answered my prayer, I believe. So this is a woman of faith. She says, blessed is the person who believes God's promises. Another uh, famous painting coming up of the, of the, the visitation. Uh, just trying to give you some visuals to, to, to kind of arouse your mind's eye. Mary then, and I don't know if anyone is wired like this in the room, when you get excited, you sing. You don't have to tell me, but like that's not me. But Mary is so excited, she burst into song. And traditionally, this is called the Magnificat. And it's called that because if you see about six words into what I'm about to read, it says, my soul glorifies, the Latin translation of that is magnifies. So over time, it's become known as Mary's Magnificat. She's magnifying God. She's praising God. So we're going to sing her, we're going to, we're not going to sing her song, we're going to read her song. So here's her, here's her song. I keep wanting to sing this morning. All right. And Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts, and he has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. So Luke loves songs. You have Zechariah's song, you have Mary's song, you have Simeon's song coming up. So it's kind of a theme in Luke. Another principal point I want to make that is self-evident in chapter one is this young woman, she's probably 14, probably similar to Lizzie's age. 
This young woman was steeped in the scriptures. She knew the Bible like the back of her hand. It's humbling to see that. Because as she sings and she's led by the Spirit, she again, we could spend hours talking about all the hyperlinks in her song to Old Testament scriptures. Her song that she wove together and sang just pulls in tons from the prophets and the Psalms and specifically from 1 Samuel 2, which is another similar story. She's making this connection point with Hannah, who also was barren, but then given the gift of a boy named Samuel. You may know that story, miraculously, who then she gives Samuel over to the priest. And we talked about Samuel a little bit last week. Here's a little bit of Hannah's song, which Mary absolutely knows and is referencing here in her own song. Hannah's song is, the, the bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for food, but those who were hungry are hungry no more. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. For he raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. We see the flip, the great reversal in Hannah's song and in Mary's song that Luke is introducing us to. Mary says, I rejoice in God my Savior. Consider that. The one she is carrying in her womb is her Savior. And then she goes on to introduce in her Magnificat. And I think this is why Luke frames it right at the end of chapter one to tell us as readers, as he's writing a discipleship manual, to tell us of what is coming. This is the type of way the kingdom operates. And it's totally different than the way the world operates. So we got to get our mind in it. It's a paradigm shift. Mary sings that God scatters the proud, brings down the rulers from their throne, but lifts up the humble. He sends away the rich, but fills up the hungry. I like how Eugene Peterson in the message, if, you, if, if you're a faithful Bible reader, it's great to change translations. Peterson's the message often gives me a different angle on it. He translates those words this way. For he bared, God bared his arm and showed his strength. He scattered the bluffing braggarts. He knocked tyrants off their high horses. He pulled victims out of the mud and the starving poor sat down to a banquet while the callous rich were left out in the cold. Isn't that great? This is what Jesus is bringing. This is what Jesus is about. This is what his followers are to bring about in their worlds in the course of life, what we're to inhabit and bring about in Portland, in our cities, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our workplaces. Mary introduces, her song introduces this idea, and then Jesus, her boy, who's hearing the song in the womb, but certainly Mary sung it over him as a young boy. Certainly she taught it to him. He inhabits it in his ministry. And this is just, I just want to give you a couple teasers of what's coming. He clearly walked in line with the song. If you go to Luke 4, this is where Jesus will launch his ministry. We'll have a message specifically on this passage. And he, he walks right into the synagogue, place of honor, walks up to the place of honor of honors to read the scriptures, opens the scroll and reads from Isaiah. And this is a piece of what he reads. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And then he goes on and on and on, slight to the blind. He's referencing the Old Testament. And he goes, today, this is fulfilled in your presence. He's inhabiting the Magnificat. In Luke 6, uh, this is kind of Luke's version of, of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who, are hung who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. And of course, in Luke and a lot of the other gospel writers, Jesus says the last will be first, the first will be last. Jesus in Luke 14 tells a story about a kingdom where there's a great 
banquet offered. And the invitations go out to all the rich and the powerful. So far, that's nothing different. That's how the world works. But they're all too busy. And guess who inhabits that banquet feast? And it's a picture of the kingdom to come. Luke tells us it's inhabited by the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. Mary says in the song, God has done. The tense of this word in the Greek is it's a really cool tense. It means that God has begun to do it and will continue to do it until it's completed. And God is manifesting this in our presence. God is calling us new hope in this city with our short lives to inhabit the Magnificat, to enter into it, to be part of this great reversal. That's some of the excitement of this series. Mary ends the Magnificat by referencing Abraham and Sarah, the patriarch who Abraham is a, is a herder who's called out and told by God, God's gonna make him a great family. This is a grace calling. This isn't a merit calling. Great family who will launch a great nation, who will bring forth the Messiah. And then if you know their story a little bit, Sarah's then barren forever. She's like this elderly woman. They're like, when's this coming? And they have a miracle baby, but that's not the one. That's the beginning of the line of the one. And Mary's pulling it all together in the Magnificat, referencing Abraham and Sarah, saying, today in my womb, this is fulfilled. It's astounding. She gets it. She's locked in. But let's just step back. If, if, if we were looking at chapter one, even with a first century eye for sure, but even now, and we're looking at these two characters, you got the male patriarch, priest, you know, righteous and blameless, Luke tells us, and then you got this young woman from Nazareth. Who are you banking on that God's gonna choose to carry forth the plan of salvation? <laughs> Probably Zachariah, but how did Zachariah respond? Like, I don't know. I'm not sure that's gonna happen. You know, you got silence, you got benched. The woman, and this is astounding. It, it, let's think of her resume for a second. One, she's young. And young people in our society, God bless you if you're here, aren't very valued, you know that. In the first century, they weren't even considered people really. Nobody, nobody gave, you remember Jesus? He's like, let the children come to me. Like, they're worthy, they're made in the Imago Dei. She's like 14. Now that's like Lizzie's age. That's my daughter Eden's age, if you know my daughter Eden. And I think the world of my daughter, she's probably watching from home today. I love you, honey. But I'm not putting the future salvation on her shoulders. Like she barely gets her laundry done some weeks, right? So it's like, I'm just being honest, right? Like it's like 14. She's a woman in a heavily patriarchal world where they had no legal rights. Sorry, ladies. They were seen as second class citizens. That's just what it was. She's from Nazareth, this town that nothing good comes from. And now to top it all off, she's got this scandal hovering over her. This betrothed young woman that's starting to show. That's who God chooses. That's what I was telling you at the beginning. God doesn't choose like we choose. Thank goodness. God often chooses the most unexpected people to do the most important thing. So we're not gonna get into the theology of Mary with all due respect to my Catholic brothers and sisters, and they are, they have a different theology, and I think that's worthy of wrestling with. I think a lot of people are so blown away as they really think about who Mary is, and I hope you're blown away by Mary this morning, that they almost like overcompensate and make Mary an object of faith. I think that's wrong. I don't think Mary should be an object of faith. I don't think Mary would want that. But I do think Protestants, that's us, non-Catholics, we lower Mary and don't talk, to her, don't talk about her much at all. I think Luke is positioning her not as an object of faith, but as the model of faithfulness. I really think that's what he's doing. And I think he's like, first chapter here, he's given us a discipleship manual. He's given Mary kind of a, 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 a portrait here. And first, this is your model disciple. If you wanna be faithful, if you wanna be a faithful Jesus follower, look at this young woman. 
kind of ignore the priest. He came around. <laughs> Look at the young woman. So that's kind of where I want the message to land today. What about Mary? Is Luke positioning as the model disciples, the one who is a picture and portrait of faithfulness that we should look to and learn from and embody? I think three things. One, Mary is a low life. Now, don't stare at me angrily. Don't get upset. Let me explain what I mean by that. Mary says it herself. Mary says that she has been mindful of her humble state. And then later in the song, she sings that God lifts up the humble. If you look at the Hebrew language and the Greek language and Latin, all three of those words for humility essentially mean the same thing. It means low or to go low. In the Latin, the root of the word for, for humility is the same root as earth. So it's like down to earth. So I define humility as, as going low. Now, humility is both circumstantial and it's a mindset. There's two different aspects of it. So you can be talking to somebody and they'll be like, I come from humble origins, if you heard that term, right? I come from small town America and we didn't have much wealth and we pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps and that whole deal, right? And Mary absolutely came from humble origins, low. In the, in the whole scheme of the world, she didn't have a lot going for her. But Mary also had a mindset of humility. Gabriel didn't show up and we find Mary in the text being like, well, it's about time I've been waiting like for you to tell me how awesome I am. That's not her at all. In fact, she says, and, and at first it sounds like she said that, she says, generations will call me blessed. Why? Because the mighty one has done great things for me. She's forever pointing to the Lord. Mary did not walk around her town with a t-shirt and an arrow pointing down saying, mother of God. Or she didn't have her minivan, a bumper sticker that said Messiah on board. It's none of that. None. Come on, that's funny. Come on, come on. She's embodying this state of humility. The word pride in most languages means to go high. It's the opposite of humility. Haughty is another way. It means high-minded. The way the world works is the people that are high-minded, that, that want to climb the ladder of success, they're the ones that usually get there, stepping on people as they go. That's how the world works, and we usually reward that and choose that and applaud that. The Bible is different. The kingdom of Jesus is different. It's a great reversal, and we see this in the first chapter. And Mary taught her son these things. We see this in his ministry. Who do you think was his primary teacher? Mary. So here's a, a, a couple more teasers. Jesus was called and defined as gentle and humble in heart. You, you fast forward to Luke 18, and Jesus is telling this, this story about the Pharisee and the sinner, and you think he's going to lift up the Pharisee because he's the Pharisee in how he prays, but he lifts up the tax collector. And then he says, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then there's a story, and there's many table scenes in Luke. We'll get to some of them, where Jesus is invited to a very important feast. And in, in the first century world, it's where you set that matter places of honor, how close you got to the host, who was the important person. Things haven't changed that much, have they? And Jesus comes into that and he says, when you're invited to dinner, this is what he's telling his disciples, when you're invited, take the lowest place. And then he repeats the line, those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exhausted. His disciples' most frequent argument throughout all the gospels was who was the greatest. Can you imagine Jesus? He must've been like, you gotta be kidding me with this group. They heard him teach. They saw him live and still to the, almost to the very end, they're arguing who's gonna sit at his right hand. He couldn't tell them enough because it's so rooted in us, this way of thinking, of exalting ourselves 
that we can't hear it enough that we're called to go low and be humble. Our kids community, which if your kids are involved, they're, they're back there right now, Lero and his team, Christine, they're, Tabitha, they're awesome. And we had a Halloween dance party, you know, around that time of Halloween last year. My family went, it was awesome. Tons of families from New Hope, great time. One of the things we did uh, was limbo dance. Anybody ever done the limbo? It's been a long time, right? So we had this long line of kids in costume, you know, Leroy's dancing, and I could only watch so much of that. And he's talking, and they're doing the limbo, and then some adults would sneak in the line and try to get under it. It's so cute. They're all just trying to, they're falling over backwards, and this and that. You know the idea of the limbo. I'm told Fred Myers has a bunch of commercials on the limbo, don't they? Some weird thing. Somebody was telling me that. The limbo, essentially, who wins the limbo? The person that goes the lowest. And that's the idea of the kingdom of God. It's not about winning, but the ones who will be exalted in Jesus' kingdom are the ones that go lowest. What, what does it look like for, for you and I to go low this week? you're gonna have a million and one opportunities even today to make that decision. That last, very last Christmas cookie that's hanging on for dear life in the fridge. You know, you go in, you open the door, whatever, that last piece of pie or whatever it is, and you have that moment, I have that moment where you think about it. You're like, I don't know. You know, letting someone out before you on the road. Uh, You know, letting someone go first and you going second. Uh, That full sink of dishes that you look at and then just walk away from. Right? We have this, this decision as followers of Jesus every day. Are we going to go higher? Or are we going to go lower? Young Mary is showing us that to be faithful, we go lower. Secondly, Mary takes God seriously. She uses this line in her song, her, his mercy extends to those who fear him. This word mercy translates the word hesed from the Old Testament. God's faithful love is enjoyed and inhabited by those who fear God. And as we talk about a lot around here, it's not boogeyman fear. That's not what it means to fear the Lord. John Walton, Old Testament uh, scholar, he says to fear God is to take God seriously. Mary absolutely took God seriously. She's been waiting along with the faithful for 400 years and no prophecies, nothing. And yet she doesn't miss a beat when Gabriel shows up. She's like, yep, I'm in. I believe I'm there. A few years ago, I was working on some stuff at home and I got a, I got a pop-up and I clicked on the pop-up. First mistake, don't do that. I'm, I'm learning, I'm a work in progress. So I clicked on the pop-up and they're like, congratulations, it's flashing like this. Congratulations, you're one of five people that got chosen for a $500 gift card to Apple. And I'm like, yes, boom, score. And all you have to do, they told me, was take this questionnaire. And I hear all of you right now, don't click on it, Jod. Don't, I clicked on it. Because I was thinking like $500 to Apple, I like their products. And then my wife couldn't tell me how to spend it, right? Because it's just mine. I want it. And so I click on and I spend like 45 minutes doing this. I just literally, it's embarrassing to tell the story. I did all of that. And then you know what happened. I think I got like 14 magazine subscriptions and like tons of spam for like, I'm still dealing with it. Do you think I ever got the 500 bucks? No. We live in a world of like broken promises and it's so in us we just expect it anymore, I think. Um, we break promises, all of us in this room, I and mean, we're, we're broken people. And friendships, there's broken promises. In romantic relationships, there's broken promises. In your employment situations, there's broken promises. Athletes definitely break promises. Coaches definitely break promises. Politicians occasionally break promises. 
I think you actually have to have that on your resume, willing to break promises to run for office, whatever party. And every once in a while, your pastor may break a promise to you. Every once in a while. We just live in this world of broken promises. And if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. That's what I should have learned from my, my scenario. That's why it's so difficult and challenging and a crux of discipleship to take God seriously. And again, do we? Do you as a follower of Jesus, do we as a church? I'm pretty convinced in my own life and a lot of the people I see around me, a lot of the churches in the Western world, that we're kind of playing around a little bit. I think we're playing around a little bit. You could argue that anytime we sin, and I do multiple times a day, is us not taking God seriously. Do we really take God seriously? I mean, if we don't, let's just stop meeting and let's not do this foolishness. Or we do. There's no in-between ground. And young Mary shows us what it's like to be a faithful disciple because when she hears the word of the Lord, unlike the, the priest Zachariah, she takes God seriously. And I think that's astounding. Finally, um, we, uh, we see in Mary that she puts her life in God's hands. I love this phrase. Go back and reflect on it this week. I think this is the thing that most powerfully affected me as I studied for this message. Her response, the literal phrase in the NIV translation is, may your word be fulfilled in me. Maybe more precise, you could translate it, let it happen to me according to your word. Are you kidding me? <laughs> let it happen to me according to your word. That word happen can be translated as born. So she could literally be saying, let it be born in me according to your word. Whatever. It's her way of saying, thy will be done. And we have to understand the cost because if there's no cost, that's not very impressive. But for her, she knew her world. She knew a young woman from Nazareth who's at the beginning of a betrothal process starting to show a child. She knew, she could already picture what that conversation with Joe was gonna look like. Uh, Joseph, we gotta talk. It's not, you're not gonna be happy. And he got a dream that was helpful. He was a godly man. We know that, that's incredible. But what's she gonna say to the people in her town when they start talking? Oh, it's a Holy Spirit thing. That's not gonna go over. This is not gonna go over. Now, this didn't happen all the time, but the penalty for adultery in the middle of a betrothal period was death. So let's not, let's not like throw away what this young girl was saying when she said she heard it. She didn't fully understand it, but she believed it and she said, thy will be done. Who else said thy will be done? little Bible quiz. Jesus, when Jesus taught us to pray, he taught us to pray, thy will be done. When Jesus is at his darkest moment in the garden and he's on his face before God, knowing what's coming, and literally he's, 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 he has blood pouring down his face because he's in such anguish, what does he pray? Thy will be done. Who taught him to pray that? Mary. That's what it looks like to be a faithful disciple is to, to step into the world, whatever come our way, and we take God so seriously. They're like, you know better than me, God, and I'm fully yours. Whatever you want, here I am. My friend Scott Erickson's an artist, and he, he drew this portrait years ago. It's one of my favorite pictures of his, and I have it hanging in my office. I look at it a lot when I'm thinking about decisions for the church and my own life, and I feel anxiety and fear and trepidation, which I do often, and, I, and it kind of causes me to take a deep breath and relax a little bit, because that is the reality. That's what's happening, and yet we don't inhabit that. 
what does it look like to step into that boat and really just relax into the freedom and the audacity of living, thy will be done? What does that look like? I, uh, I came across this prayer. It's called the Wesleyan Covenant Prayer. I do a daily uh, app called Lectio 365, which I highly recommend. You'll be joining me in it every day if you do it. Uh, they have morning and evening. And uh, they, they use this prayer at the beginning of the year, and I'd remembered it from previous. And it was written by John Wesley in 1755. You got a copy of it when you came in. If you didn't get one, um, there's some available. And I, I was walking my dogs listening to this prayer this year, and... Um, I was just like, oh my goodness, I don't know that I can pray that, <laughs> right? I like didn't feel the fear of the Lord. I felt literal fear. I was just like, whoo, and you'll know what I mean if you've looked at it. Um, I wanna, yeah, I'm gonna read it over us because uh, I, I have prayed it. I wanna read it over us. I'm not asking you to pray it with me because I wanna warn you, um, don't pray this prayer lightly. Don't pray this prayer if you don't want to change. If you want things to stay the same, just when nobody's watching, rip it up and throw it away. I'm just telling you, don't pray this prayer lightly. This is a prayer of audacious faith. This is a prayer that Mary would pray. This is the type of way she lived, and I'm convinced this is the type of way we need to live. So let me read it over you. I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing, put me to suffering. Jeez. Uh, let me be employed for you or laid aside for you. Exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things or let me have nothing. I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you are mine and I am yours, so be it. And the covenant now made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. What if, uh, what if five of us prayed this and meant it? Right. I'm, I'm in, I'm one, so four more. What, what if 10 of us? I mean, I don't wanna be crazy here, but like, what if 15 of us prayed this prayer and lived it? Can you imagine what God wants to do in our little ragamuffin crew here? God bless you. How God wants to affect the city. If we're willing to live like Mary, because this is a prayer of a low life. It's a prayer of somebody that totally takes God seriously. It's a prayer of somebody that's put their life in God's hands. Will we as well? Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. An update for our families with young ones, our kids community just shared the first episode of The Five Season 2. Go check it out at nhkidscom.org. We'll see you next week.